Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. I'm your host for today, Kathy. Today we will be discussing episode twenty of the Tang Dynasty drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or else email us at KarenandKathy at ChasingDramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. Additionally, we reference translations from what is provided online, and we will also provide our own. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us. For today's podcast episode, it will be an episode recap and then heavy on the history. We are now in complete darkness, and tonight's events are headed off in a new direction. The right chancellor realizes that he underestimated the threat, and tonight's problems are bigger than simply a couple of Wolf Squad members. Interestingly, he wants Li Bi to continue investigating. And even tells Ji Wen to help Li Bi, surreptitiously, of course, if needed. In any case, Li Bi is currently questioning a mortally wounded Cao Poyan. This guy has a freaking sword still through him and is somehow alive, just barely though. In the last episode, Li Bi gave him a pill to eat that will give him a last burst of energy before dying. So that this lone wolf squad member can share crucial information about today's events, I personally like this scene quite a bit because Li Bi explains to Cao Poyan that today's events show that the wolf squad members were just brought in as a diversion. I like how in this episode, twenty episodes later, we kind of lift a couple of the mysteries. Off or lift the veil off of the mysteries a bit. Whoever their leader was did not care about sacrificing the Wolf Squad. After all, even if these Wolf Squad members managed to bomb Chang'an, the ire of the entire Tang Dynasty would have turned to the Wolf Squad. They will be destroyed, while the person or organization who instigated this behind the scenes will get away scot-free. Li Bi's words deeply impact Cao Poyan as he now realizes that they were all probably set up and sacrificed. He shouts the words "Yo Cha" and mutters the words "Shi Zi Lian Hua" or a lotus cross. The only clues he leaves for Li Bi. He clutches his necklace and imagines seeing his daughter in a beautiful field of flowers before breathing his last breath. Cao Poyan, it's been twenty episodes, but good knowing ya. <laughs> Li Bi takes this information first to Xu Bin in order to see if he has any idea what this Shi Zi Lian Hua or Lotus Cross could mean, and then Li Bi heads back to meet Zhang Xiaojing. He actually gets into a bit of an argument with Yao Ru Neng. As Zhang Xiaojing was able to smell Wen Ran's perfume on Yao Runong and asks about her whereabouts, Yao Runong does not want to reveal to Zhang Xiaojing 
where she is and is still highly confused as to why Zhang Xiaojing can do everything today to save Chang'an for nothing in return. It doesn't make sense to him. Zhang Xiaojing turns and sits down before listing out a bunch of names. Names of his fellow soldiers that will never be able to see Chang'an. Zhang Xiaojing tells Yao Runong and Tan Xi that Wen Ran is their hope. They all wanted to see and be in Chang'an. Wen Ran will be the one to live that dream. Yao Runong checks in on the prison cell where he left Wen Ran last, only to find that she has escaped. He hurriedly returns to tell Zhang Xiaojing, but Li Bi is also present. Zhang Xiaojing finally opens up to Li Bi as to Wen Ran's importance to him in the wake of tonight's events. Honestly, every single time I believe that Yao Ronong is just a coward, he does something where I'm like, wow, I now think a little bit differently of you. <laughs> Last episode, he ran away, but he still went to save Zhang Xiaojing. And this episode, he does go and open up or try to check in on Wen Ran. Back to Li Bi and Zhang Xiaojing. Li Bi accepts Zhang Xiaojing's explanation and turns to more important matters. He shares that Cao Poyan mentioned this lotus cross. The two, Li Bi and Zhang Xiaojing, reaffirm their trust in one another because that is the only way they'll be able to succeed tonight and also eat some food to replenish energy before the upcoming slog. Xu Bin arrives shortly after and informs this group that the lotus cross must reference a church. Most likely, this Yo Cha has hidden himself inside a Persian monastery or a Bo Si Si. The group Xu Bin, Zhang Xiaojin, Li Bi, and Tan Qi then consult a map of Chang'an because there are numerous monasteries in the city. They need to narrow down where Yo Cha might have hidden himself. At this point, Tan Qi cautiously and respectfully suggests that Yo Cha must have picked a place where he would be able to view the events of the day. That is hidden, but also somewhere he is able to connect with the buyer of his information. He needs to be somewhere that can be linked everywhere. Li Bi lands on Yi Ning Fang in the northwest part of the city. Zhang Xiaojing requests for Tan Xi to accompany him in his search for this Yo Cha person. And the next thing we know, they're out in the splendid streets on the next part of their adventure. We only got Tan Xi in her beautiful women attire for a couple of episodes. And now we're back to Tan Xi in her normal, I would say, Hu Fu. It's a little bit sad, but you know what? We enjoyed it while it lasted. The evening's festivities are in full swing with wonderful lanterns displayed everywhere. And who do they see? Well, Westerners. I'm not sure what the correct term is to call them monks, priests, missionaries. Regardless, these men are definitely not of East Asian descent and we see them handing out crosses and other pamphlets. Zhang Xiaojing takes this opportunity to go undercover. He makes up a story that his wife, a.k.a. Tan Xi, dreamt of a god last night who stood on a lotus and a cross and said that a priest fated to her is coming to Chang'an. They are here at this Persian monastery to look for this priest. 
Hansi is at first a little surprised to hear him address her as such, but then settles into the role. She asks this monk whether or not there is a royal-looking priest that has recently entered into Chang'an. The monk says that there are too many people who come in and out of the city and invites them inside his church to ask one of his colleagues. They are then brought to meet Yi Si. The English translation on YouTube calls him Deacon Issei, which I think works. And Yi Si's Mandarin is very fluent. While we're listening to the drama, we can tell who has an accent and who doesn't. But Yi Si, the actor for Yi Si, is very fluent in Mandarin. Plus, he is one of my favorite characters in the show. Although when we first meet him, he's all mysterious and has his hood up. And I was like, the first time I saw this, I was like, mm, you're a little bit creepy. <laughs> well, Tansi takes this opportunity to ask Yi Si about this mysterious priest once more. He says that he does know about a priest that fits their profile and then takes them to a confession room where he will bring the priest shortly. Except... After Tan Qi and Zhang Xiaojing make their way inside the confession room, Yi Si promptly locks them in. At first, I was like, no, we have another evil person. But in reality, he's not a bad person and ends up listening outside of the room when Tan Qi and Zhang Xiaojing fake a conversation of impending peril on the church. Well, Yi Si is more like, oh my God, what's happening to the church? But in such in closed quarters, let's turn to Tan Qi and Zhang Xiaojing. You can see the pink hearts fluttering in the air as Zhang Xiaojing takes this opportunity and sneaks a kiss from Tan Qi before Yi Si bursts in to hear exactly what peril will befall the church. Come on, Yi Si, why'd you have to do that? Although, to be honest, I don't know exactly how I feel about this whole romance storyline. In the book, none of this happens. In any case, Yi Si immediately shows off his adorably naive self. He reveals himself to be a very handsome man and only locked the two in because he could tell that they weren't married by the hesitant glances the two gave each other and he wanted to protect the church. Zhang Xiaojing then also reveals his identity of working for Jing An Si. So he ups the pressure to Yi Si because the church has been harboring a terrorist that could further harm Chang An. So he's like, Knife to the neck. Tell me what you know. Poor Yi Si is over there freaking out because he has no idea what or how this all happened and has no option but to help Zhang Xiaojing. The person they are looking for, Yo Cha, does seem to be hiding in this church. And Yi Si sees this as a great opportunity to put the Roman church on the map in Chang'an. If he can help find and apprehend this Yo Cha, then hopefully the Tang Emperor will grant him and his church with more recognition. Just, just in time as well, the episode closes with a hooded figure in a white robe rushing back to his living quarters before looking up and seeing masked assassins. Well, that closes out our podcast episode recap. The only other piece I'd like to highlight is that Wen Ran has escaped and reconvened with Longbo, but not before slapping Yu Chang across the face a few times for what she did to Wen Ran earlier. I mean, it makes sense. Yu Chang basically left Wen Ran for dead, and 
right here, Yu Chang still haughty and still just like, oh my god, I'm the best person for you, Longbo. Yu Chang, once again, you are such a accomplished, I would say, woman. Why are you spending all of your time around Longbo? As for the assassins, off to kill this man in white robes sent by Longbo. Before we move on to history, though, let's say goodbye to Cao Poyan. After 20 episodes, he fought valiantly for his people, but paid the ultimate price. He is portrayed by Wu Xiaoliang, who actually is of the Mongolian ethnic minority. The actor has been in several dramas over the years, but mainly in supporting roles. I thought this actor did a fantastic job as Cao Poyan, and he will be sorely missed. Now, on to history. First up, when Li Bi talks to Zhang Xiaojing about his responsibilities for Chang'an, he quotes from Dao De Jing, this particular quote, 天地不仁,以万物为刍狗. This is a really famous quote from, as I mentioned, Dao De Jing, the foundational text of Taoism and written approximately in 400 BC by the sage Lao Zi. The text of Dao De Jing itself had a huge influence on Chinese philosophy, including everything from Confucianism to legalism to Chinese Buddhism. In this episode, which was filled with references to different types of religion, why not also include Taoism? It makes sense for Li Bi to say this because he is a Taoist. As we'll see in this episode and have seen in this episode, religion does take many shapes and forms, and aren't always black and white. There's heavy influences of different religions with each other, which I'll get to in a bit. I found a pretty good translation of the phrase online. Heaven and earth are impartial. They see the 10,000 things as straw dogs. The reason why I say that it's a good translation is because if one takes the phrase literally, just the phrase in Chinese, it would be the heaven and earth are heartless. They see the 10,000 things as straw dogs. One would say, hmm, why would such a phrase be in Dao De Jing? This means we can't just look at that phrase itself. We need to take a look at perhaps a couple phrases after. So if we look for four sentences, it will now be 天地不仁,以万物为刍狗,圣人不仁,以百姓为刍狗. That translation now becomes, heaven and earth are impartial, they see the 10,000 things as straw dogs. The wise are impartial, they see the people as straw dogs. So let's parse it down a little bit more. 刍狗 or straw dogs were used for religious ceremonies in ancient times. If people didn't want to sacrifice a live animal, they would sacrifice this chugo. Once the ceremony was complete, it was tossed aside. So if someone took the literal translation, that would further validate that heaven and earth don't care. But reading the whole phrase, that included the second phrase of shengren, or the wise, that means that heaven and earth, as well as the wise men, aren't heartless, but impartial. This means that the heaven and the earth views everything equally. And that is where Li Bi is coming from when he talks to 
Zhang Xiaojing. He has responsibility for everyone. I will say that 天地不仁以万物为刍狗 pops up a lot in different dramas and books. Jade Dynasty or Zhu Xian, a book that I thoroughly enjoyed when I was younger, had this phrase as a major theme. But they took the very negative translation. They went the whole "the heaven and earth are heartless" route instead of the impartial route. For those of you who might be more familiar, the drama *Noble Aspirations* is based off of the book *Zhu Xian*. The drama had a lot to be desired from it.、Um, I highly recommend reading the book instead. <laughs> Tanti brings forth what looks like modern-day fried sesame balls. Instead, she calls them yo chui, which directly translate to oil hammer. <laughs> During the Song Dynasty. There are records stating that Yoshui was eaten during the Lantern Festival, which is where we are now, and the Ghost Festival, which happens later. These records also documented how people during the Song Dynasty prepared them. I couldn't find any records specific from the Tang Dynasty, but this is close enough. And as a reminder, the Song Dynasty was about a thousand years ago, rather than fourteen, fifteen hundred years ago. So, the dish itself, or the ball itself, is made of sweet bean paste, date paste, and an assortment of nuts such as walnuts, peanuts, and pine nuts. They make the filling that is then wrapped in a sticky rice flour made wrapper. All of that is rolled into a circular shape. It's kind of a little bit like a bow, where you have the filling and then you make the circular shape. The Bun, you would say, or the ball is fried and rolled in more sesame, and then voila, you have yo chui. It's slightly different from today's sesame balls because they are typically just made with sesame paste or else red bean paste. But I don't think this yo chui is that hard to make. There are recipes online that、uh, kind of try to follow the original recipes as written in the Song Dynasty texts. So again, it's not that difficult to make. The next piece of information, which actually is a debunk, is when Tan Xi and Zhang Xiaojing walk through the hordes of people. They stop by a bunch of people smelling candles. Zhang Xiaojing noted that people did this to extend life because the candles themselves were called Xi Zhu Shou, or literally translated, inhaling life candles. This whole custom is actually an invention by the author. Yes, scented candles were used, but not for this purpose. Well, now we really didn't talk about Yu Chang or the assassins in the podcast episode recap, but I want to talk a little bit more about Yu Chang herself. She's over here being a pain in the butt. She's salty that he sent other assassins, and states the reason why she is called Yu Chang is because she is just as lethal and deadly as the famous Yu Chang sword. Yu Chang as a sword was forged by the legendary sword maker Ou Yezi. It is unclear when he lived, but we know that he lived during the spring and autumn period over twenty five hundred years ago. Commissioned by the king of Yue, he forged five swords in three years, including Zhan Lu, Chunjun, Shengxie, Yu Chang, Ju Que. Later, he was commissioned by the king of Chu to forge three more swords: Longyuan, 
Tai E and Gong Bu. The Yuchang sword is considered the sword of bravery. As documented in the History of Assassins, which is taken from the records of the Grand Historian, or Shi Ji, written by Sima Tian in the 1st century BC, the Yuchang sword was hidden within the intestines of a fish by the assassins Zhuan Zhu to specifically kill the king of Wu. With this sword, Zhuan Zhu succeeded. There are several legends as to the naming of the sword. Taken literally, Yuchang means fish intestines. Some say that the sword got its name from the engravings on the hilt. The weaves look somewhat like a cooked fish intestine. However, others say that it potentially got its name because the assassin Zhuan Zhu hid the sword inside fish intestines, which is how it got its name. Regardless, this sword is lost to history now, but it was named the 10 most famous swords in history. What's interesting to me is that those 10 famous swords in history are all named like before 0 AD. <laughs> so that list has been around for thousands of years. Anyways, our character Yu Chang is over here pouting that she was not sent to be an assassin. But I'm like, honey, so far, all you've been doing is pout. I agree why Longbo didn't assign you to this mission. And now let's move on to the major topic for today, Western religion, specifically the Church of the East in China. I was actually very surprised when I saw these missionaries or monks appear on my screen the first time because I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Well, when Cao Poyan died, he gave the major clue of Shi Zilianhua or the Lotus Cross. Zhang Xiaojing and Tan Xi head off to find the church, but were originally led astray because they thought that they were looking for a Persian monastery, which is why earlier I said Bo Si Si. Bo Si means Persian and Si means monastery or church. But instead, they found a Nestorian church or a Roman church. I won't go into a full history on Nestorianism, but it began its outward expansion during the 4th and 5th centuries after establishing itself in Persia. Missionaries most likely made it to China by the 6th century via the Silk Road. According to the Jingjiao Stili, which was unearthed in 625 and erected in 781, it states that in 635, during the reign of the Tang Dynasty Emperor Tang Taizong, the missionary Alopen gained recognition in the Tang court. He, along with his fellow missionaries, traveled from the Eastern Roman Empire, or Da Qin, to the East, bringing with them sacred texts and images. Alopen traveled with 21 fellow missionaries, bringing with them over 500 sacred texts. The translation of the stele includes the title Memorial of the Propagation in China of the Luminous Religion from Da Qin. Well, the Nestorians apparently changed the name from Nestorianism to Jingjiao, or Luminous Religion, with the hopes of being able to more easily spread the religion. I mean, Nestorianism is a mouthful, even in English, compared to just Jingjiao. In English, or, you know, doing a quick search, they were called 
as or known as the Church of the East. But because the original missionaries came from Persia, these monasteries were called Bosisi. That's why in the drama, Xu Bin first calls them Bosisi, and Yisu corrects them to say, hey, this is not a Persian monastery, this is a Roman monastery, or Da Qin Jin Si. Well, these missionaries for the Church of the East were able to practice in China rather peacefully for around 200 years, including during the reign of Emperor Tang Xuanzong, which is where we are now. Apparently, Emperor Tang Xuanzong bestowed upon this Church of the East portraits of five previous Tang Dynasty emperors to place in the church. That wasn't customary at the time to place Tang Dynasty emperors in a house of God, but these missionaries wanted to assimilate to the local culture and agreed to have these portraits hung in the monastery. That also might hint to why under the cross, there's also the bed of lotus flowers. There was a heavy influence of Buddhism in China, and lotus flowers are a symbol in Buddhism. It's not a stretch to believe that there are some influences from Buddhism to this church of the East over the time or during the time that they were prevalent in China. During its peak in the Tang Dynasty, the empire had over 100 of these churches with over 200,000 followers. A last interesting tidbit. It was only in 745 did the Emperor Tang Xuanzong change the name of these churches to go from Persian monasteries, from Bo Si Si to Da Qin Si or Roman monasteries. Once again, right now we're still in 744, so they're not widely known as Da Qin Si or Da Qin Jing Si. So again, Yisu correcting both Tan Qi and Zhang Xiaojing does make sense in this episode. Well, that closes out our discussion of episode 20 of The Longest Day in Chang'an. We'll learn a lot more about who this mysterious deacon is in the next week's episode, so I won't spoil it for now. The music for this episode is Qing Pingyue played by Karen with sheet music by Cui Jianghui. If you're looking for sites to watch dramas and you're in the U.S., head over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That's J-U-B-A-O TV. It's a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. They've launched on Sling TV and you can stream it on a variety of platforms such as Plex or else if you want to access it on TV, if you have Xfinity or Cox Contour, it is all free. Thank you so much for joining us today and we will catch you in the next podcast episode.